Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Ezra 1, and I'm going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 3. So this is, this is going to be like meat and potatoes tonight. You're going to have to hang in with me a little bit because I think you're going to see some things in Scripture maybe that you've never ever seen before. And I'm, I'm going to try to take my time and not be in a hurry. I'm sure I'll be mindful of the clock, and I don't think we'll be past 8 o'clock for sure. But just um, hang in there with me. But there's, there's three people in the Old Testament. Let me lay this foundation before we read this. I'm going to be talking tonight about the restoration of the temple after the Babylonian and Persian captivity. Remember, it was the Babylonian captivity. The Persians took over the Babylonians. And those people under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah came back to restore what was lost because of their sin. Jeremiah spent his whole book, telling these people, warning them that if they didn't forsake their sin, that God was going to send judgment to what he did. Now, the interesting part of this is how it correlates to today. And for instance, just to give you an idea, just sit down for a little bit. It's going to take me a second, just laying the foundation for this. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, man was told what he shouldn't do. He was told he could eat of every tree in the garden, but he should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He disobeyed. He went against God's command, and the whole uh, destiny of the earth changed for uh, humanity. Sin entered into the world. It was like Eden lost. And God, from the beginning of time, he was the lamb slain from the foundation or from the beginning, wanted to restore what was originally there, the, the paradise of Eden, a fellowship with his creation. Now, when I look at the Babylonian captivity, I see uh, God, through Jeremiah expressly, saying that he's going to restore them after 70 years and he's going to bring them back. So we have three key players here in the restoration. The first key player, player was Zerubbabel. He brought 50,000 Jews back from the Persian Empire uh, to start that regeneration process of what God had promised through Jeremiah after the judgment. Now, Zerubbabel's name means to be planted in Babylon. In other words, I'm planted in Babylon. I grew up in Babylon. I was an outcast in Babylon. But it's all about God bringing people from captivity back to freedom. Now remember that. With Eden, from captivity of sin, back to the freedom of fellowship. It's the same here. Now when I look at the New Testament, it's the same thing bringing them from the curse of the law or from the, the judgment and bondage of sin back to the freedom of Christ. And there's a direct correlation. Zerubbabel brought them back. He didn't build a temple. He didn't bring the word. He served a purpose. He was to bring the Jews back, the first 50,000, to where they could hear the word through Ezra. Ezra comes back his mission is, and I'm just, this is just a foundation. We're going to talk about this more in Scripture. His mission was to deliver the word and to build a community, to build, to build the nation of Israel again with the foundation seeds of the word. Now, when I get to, Ezra, uh, uh, to Nehemiah, his purpose was to take over where Ezra left off and to rebuild the walls and provide security for what's taking place. Nehemiah was the wall builder. He was the one that brought in authority and protection. Now, when I look at the New Testament, I see three key players. Well, actually, one's playing two parts. I see John. He's the first one mentioned. 
he sent first. And he preaches a message of repentance. He gathers people together with the message. Then I see Christ, and in John 1 and 1, it says that the word was made flesh. Jesus brought the revelation of deity. But the third key player, just like Nehemiah, was the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the same as Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ. I'm not saying it's a third individual. The Spirit of God came to bring authority and power and protection. So, with that as my foundation night, when you're thinking that way, in the scriptures that I share with you, I want you to remember that reference. I'm going to call my message tonight, and this is what started all this, is in my Bible reading, I came across um, uh, a verse, uh, and it talks about a nail in his holy place in the book of Ezra. Have you ever done that? You're reading your Bible and say, well, what does that mean? A nail in his holy place. I'm going to read that verse in just a second. And that's what got me thinking about, it's in Ezra, the ninth chapter, verse 8. I read this verse, it says, Now for a little space grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. <laughs> oh, this is so beautiful how this all fits together. We're, we're going to be escaping from this situation in a little while. And to give us a nail in his holy place. And to give us a nail in his holy place. That our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Now, there's some of us that know more about nails than others. Like if I ask Brother Hemingway, what good is a nail? What is the, what is the purpose of a nail? He would probably say to hold something together or to hold it down and keep it from moving. I'm probably wrong. If I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Good. So when it says that he's made a nail in his holy place, what is the holy place in the tabernacle? What was, what was the purpose or the function of the holy place? Now remember there's two divisions, the holy place and the holiest of holies. The holy place was a place of fellowship. The candlesticks, the showbread, the incense. It was where you began that relationship with God. But remember, it was the beginning of a relationship. The ultimate goal was to get into the intimate relationship of the holies of holies. Only once a year, only the high priest went in. But God has put a nail for us in his holy place. In other words, we're not going to be moved. We're secure in him. We're nailed to that holy place. Now, let's go back to Ezra 1, 1 through 3, and I'll try to stay more with my notes. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, now notice what's happening here. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in, Jeru in Judah. He acknowledges the God of heaven and tells him he has been given that direction from heaven to restore the house of the Lord. Whos whoever there is among you of all his people, May as God be with him, let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. We're talking about a nation that's a heathen nation. Persia wasn't Jewish. But God is moving upon Cyrus and giving him a revelation of who he is and his mission in the restoring of his people in worship. 
Now, when we look at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, most people don't realize that in their original text, they were just one book. They were not two books. Ezra and Nehemiah, through translation, were actually made into two books, but originally, they were one. Um, and they promised basically the restoration of Israel after the 70 years of exile in Babylon um, and to restore that which was lost. Now, Zerubbabel, let's look at him again just briefly. He's a Babylonian Jew, and uh, he's one of those Jewish exiles going back or leading those, uh, those Jews from the Persian Empire back to the land of Israel or back to the area of Jerusalem. Um, first, that first group of people, like I said, were 50,000 Jews. Uh, and most people aren't aware that Zerubbabel was of the house of David, besides. All this stuff is crucial because the scripture fits together like a glove. Now, Zerubbabel was extremely influenced by contemporaries like Haggai and Zechariah. And so we go on and remember that his purpose was to rebuild the temple, a place of worship. Before you can do anything for God, you have to establish a place in your life of centrality of worship. Everything that you do must center on your service and worship for God. Even before you build the walls, even before you hear the word of God, you must acknowledge who he is and reverence him. Now, when they built that, that first temple, it was glorious. They built it under Solomon. And if you remember, one thing happened at that temple, that first temple, that didn't happen at the one that Zerubbabel built. Fire fell from heaven after the sacrifices. Remember that? And a cloud filled the temple. It was a magnificent experience. There were still people alive that remembered the first temple, the one that was destroyed because of the rebellion. So when Zerubbabel laid the foundation for the temple and rebuilt it, and it was completed, it was a much smaller temple than the first one of Solomon. And there were people that rejoiced to have worship. Some of them had never seen the original temple. And they rejoiced just to have it. But the people that were older, that had saw the first temple, they wept. So that you couldn't discern the sound between weeping and rejoicing. What was absent in the second temple that was present in the first? No fire. At this time when they completed it, there was no cloud that filled the temple. And that partly pl that played a role in the reaction of those that were there. Now again, I'll remind you, Ezra is going to focus on Torah. He's going to bring the word. Zerubbabel's going to establish the temple and worship. And Nehemiah is going to build a wall of protection to keep that which has been accomplished. It's going to do no good to bring all these things together without a wall of protection. If the enemy can come in and take whatever he wants anytime he wants it, you're going to find that it's not, it's not going to succeed for very long. And like I mentioned before, these, these books, I see a relationship to what the church is, is facing right now. And I'll, I'll show you why. Unlike the church, uh, unlike Israel, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And as the body, we're attached to the head. And he's the head of the church. You can't steal away the body and expect the head to exist. To defeat the body would also mean that you're defeating the head, which we know, of course, is not possible. When the Bible says that the head of the man is woman, 
He's also saying that if the unity of that relation stays the way it should, there should be no divorce. Because they become one. In like manner, as long as we remain in the body and we're subjective to the head, the relationship we have with God will not be split. And for the body to be effective, it's got to work with all its members. You may feel like you're an insignificant member. And sometimes people feel more important than they should because they're a part of the body that's more visible. But I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've ever had this, but have you ever had a cramp in your toe? Anybody? It's just a little thing about that big. But that can be painful. Even the most minor parts of your body can cause you tremendous amount of discomfort when something's wrong. Every one of you, no matter if you're a toenail or whether you're an arm, are equally valuable to the body. Now sometimes um, we need to understand things don't happen as quickly as we want. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all of your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge of wisdom or wisdom and shield where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not just to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. What he's saying, what you're seeing around you, don't compare all these things, don't, don't compare yourselves among these things. The race isn't just to the swift or the strong or the mighty. Jesus goes back in Matthew, the 24th chapter, and gives us the conclusion of what Solomon wrote in verse 12 and 13. I'm reading from the Berean Bible. Because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. I've seen a lot of people start out in this race and they run like marathoners. But all of a sudden you, go, you walk past them later on because they've just worn themselves out because they thought it was a sprint. It's not a sprint. We're in this to the end. We're pacing ourselves with Christ. And the goal is to make it to the end. And I want to assure you, the one that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is going to keep you onto the end if you remain in his body. Philippians 1 and 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If he began it, he'll complete it. Stay in him. Be patient. Don't look at what's going on around you and say, why do the wicked prosper? Doesn't mean anything. Solomon learned that. Now, I'm going to go back to Nehemiah, the second chapter, verse 11. If you don't mind, I'm going to take a drink. It is really dry in here. And it came, to pass, it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of our king Arxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, this is Nehemiah speaking, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever, why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then he, the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Jerusalem, to the cities of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Remember, Zerubbabel has already been there. He's already there. He's established the temple. 
But Nehemiah's heart is broken because there's no security. There's no walls. There's no organization in the, of, of community in, with the people. In verse 9 it says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Now when Sal and Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite officially, official heard of it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. I have that underlined in my, my, my Bible. You need to understand who Sanballat and, Hor- and uh, Tobiah are. You need to understand who the people that Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel are dealing with in the reconstruction of community or the house of God and worship. They're dealing with people that have intermarried with the Canaanites. When Babylon came against Israel or Judah, he left the poorest of the people there. Remember that? to tend the the vines and, and the crops. Well, while Israel was in captivity, many, many of those, and if you get into the book of Nehemiah, you'll see just how many families intermarried with the inhabitants of the land. So these, eventually, when we come to the New Testament, we call these people Samaritans because they're partially Israel, they're partially Jewish. And they were the biggest source of aggravation to the reconstruction of the the city of Jerusalem or the city of God. And so they're very displeased when they see the church growing. They, They see the establishment of the word and of worship. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials of the rest who, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, Its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. (laughs) That's what every pastor wants to hear. All right. Yeah, we got some work to do. Let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. Now, I've underlined this next verse, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Hornonite, Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Gershom, the Arab, heard, they heard it, they mocked us and despised us and, and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, this is where I want to start drawing a little bit of relationship between the church this day and what was happening in their day. The first accusation that's made is, you're not under the authority. You're not working with the nation. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion right, or more memorial in Jerusalem. Sin has no place, no part of the work of God. Those that are not committed, and they're torn between two different opinions of the Canaanite and the Israelite, 
they are not involved in the work. Now in chapter 4 again, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat had heard that he, we were rebuilding the wall. Notice again, he became furious and very angry, and he mocked the Jews. Now I, I want you, as I'm reading this verse, to picture what's taking place in our generation. When they hear that we're rebuilding that which has been lost, our structure, and we're providing a place of security and holiness for the church, they will become furious. They will become angry. They will mock tongues. They will mock holiness. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, even when they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. In other words, the work of, some are saying the work of Christ, it won't hold the test of time. It will fall under the least amount of pressure. He is trying to discourage those that are building the wall. Through his mocking, through his words and his anger. Now notice the prayer of Nehemiah, how he answers this attack. Now, I, I looked at this and I said, Lord, maybe is this how you want me to pray when the world is reproaching the church? Is this the kind of prayer I should use? Notice he prays, hear, O Lord, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you for they have demoralized the builders. So really the essence of this prayer is what they have poured upon our head, let it, Lord, be poured upon their own. As they have given out in like manner, let them also receive. To go on, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people, I like this too, had a mind to work. Even amidst all these things, in this, in this part of the construction, the people are holding firm. They're continuing to work. They're keeping a good, positive, positive mental and spiritual attitude. Verse 7. Now in Sanbala, Tobiah... The Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on. They thought it would stop. They thought through their activity they could stop the, the growth of what God had ordained to happen. When they heard that it continued on, they were amazed. And that the breaches began to be closed. They were even, they were very angry. The longer we exist, the church exists, and the more we grow, the angrier they get because they're doing everything within their power to stifle the growth and the unity of the church of the body of Christ. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And notice this last part of the verse, and to, to, to cause a disturbance in it. Okay, I'm... Contemplation. Look at the last words in there. We've tried the confrontation. Now we're going to try to cause a disturbance in the work. Cause a disturbance in it. Do you remember back when Rome burned? 
I've heard, I've heard different um, thoughts on this, but Nero, you, it is said that some believe that Nero started the fire that burnt Rome. And he did it to raise opposition to the Christians. And it, it worked because he blamed the Christians for causing the fire. Now, remember just recently what happened in Washington, D.C.? I'm not being political. I'm just maybe making a correlation. They caused a disturbance. And they said that the right-wing moral people of, the, of, this, of this country were responsible for the rebellion. The devil hasn't really changed his tactics. He's just repackaging them. Now in Nehemiah 4 and 9, our enemy said they will not work or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. So now they want to try integration. They want to integrate or immigrate into the church and try to destroy the church or the work of Nehemiah from within. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us, how many times? Ten times. They will come up against us from every place where you may turn. You know, if you repeat it long enough, somebody will begin to believe it. Not once, twice, not three or four times, but ten times. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families uh, with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, now we've talked about this. I'm not just talking about the fear of the coronavirus. That's a small part of what's taking place in our country and in the world right now. The Bible told me that there would be a spirit of fear. Men's hearts failing them for the things that they, with fear, because of the things they see coming upon the face of the earth. But when Nehemiah saw their fear, I rose up and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not listen to me tonight. Do not be afraid of them. I feel with all my heart tonight that what I'm telling you right now is what God is trying to express to the church. He is saying, do not be afraid of them. <clears throat> Remember, the Lord, who is great and awesome, when you forget who he is, fear will creep into your mind and your heart. It will disable you spiritually and make you less effective in the building of the work for which we're here. We're all builders. We're reconstructing, reconstructing the walls. And then it goes on to say, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Don't just throw away your fear, but gird up your loins like men and like women and fight for what is yours, for your brothers and your sons and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard, it, heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. A good leader, a good pastor, good leadership, reinforcing a simple message, brings people back to work. From that day on, half of my servants carried uh, on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Not everyone's going to be doing the same job tonight. There's going to be prayer warriors. There's going to be people that are supporting the work. And there's going to be people that are putting stone upon stone with mortar. They're equally important. 
If you have all prairie warriors and all of them are just holding the swords and the shields and no one's working, the work is not moving on. God has called us specifically for a place in the establishment of the church on earth. Those who were building the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand, doing the work, and the other holding a weapon. Everyone had a weapon, but there were those that whose job was solely to watch over the work. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. Now, I want you to see this. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I may be way out in left field, but that's all right. I like where I'm at. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Now remember the three things that I talked about. John the Baptist, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, all three were designed for a purpose in reestablishing the church. When I think of this trumpet and what it was meant to do, I'm sorry, my mouth is really dry. What did it say they were to do in the trumpet? He blew the trumpet with Nehemiah. What were the people to do? Everybody gathered together to where the trumpet was. They all united around the trumpet because that's where they would do the war. Trumpet's significant here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be, always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we've preached this in the past many times, that that's our ticket out of here. That's not completely true. I want you to look at this in relationship to Nehemiah. They blew the trumpet for a reason, to gather the warriors together, not to go back and drink uh, lemonade and have an umbrella over their head in heaven, but to fight. When we get are taken up into heaven, when the trumpet sounds, we're not just being taken out of the scenario, we're brought into a different position of fighting. We're unified from all over the world. When the trumpet sounds, wherever Christians are, they will come up into the clouds, meet the Lord in the air. Now look at Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. With righteousness he judges and wages war. Okay? He's, he's in Revelation 19. He's ready to fight. He's the captain of the Lord's host. His eyes, like blazing fire and many royal crowns on his head, he has a name written on him that only he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Now notice verse 14. The armies of heaven, dressed in fine linen, white and pure, follow him on white horses, and from his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are these people that are with him on horses when he comes back, when his people are being attacked in the battle of Armageddon? when all the armies of the earth have gathered together against Israel? Who do you think is gathering together when the trumpet sounds to come back to fight against the enemies of God? 
the trumpet summons the warriors. You're a warrior. And when Armageddon takes place, the warriors are coming back to fight with the head of the body. All that's really happening is the head of the body is calling the body together and the body of the church with the head, which is Christ, is coming against the enemy that has tried to destroy it from the very beginning. I'd never seen that until I, I looked at it and I thought that it's a perfect correlation. I've always thought that when the trumpet sounds and I go to heaven and everything that takes place upon the earth, I'll, I can maybe watch it from up above. But no, I'm called back to serve. Nehemiah said when they come against the wall, when the enemy comes, I'll blow the trumpet. That summons people from wherever they are in the city of Jerusalem. They're all going to come to the place of battle. One central located source of battle, which is Armageddon. That final battle that rages on the earth is only in one place. It's not all over the world. It's only in one place place, Armageddon, and that's where Satan is defeated. All right, let's move on. That was just a little extra insert there. Nehemiah 6, when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard it, that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left, though to that time I had not yet installed the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Now this is a warning for all of us. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. He's tried different tactics to stop the work. What do you think this tactic is? Come outside the walls. And let's let's have a meeting outside the walls. It was enticement to step out of protection. And Satan tonight is enticing Christians to step outside the walls of the church and meet with him in a compromised meeting. But notice what Nehemiah says, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to go down to you? Now notice how Satan works. Verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. You know, Satan doesn't give up. He may tempt you once, and you you might overcome the temptation, but he'll tempt you a second time, a third time, a fourth time. He will continue to tempt you with the same temptation. But notice the fifth time. Sanballat sent me the same message by his young servant who had in his hand an unsealed letter that read. Now it's a threat. It's reported among the nations and Geshem agrees that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. Listen, I know none of you listen to the news anymore. This is way over your head. I get, when I do turn it on for a little bit, just so I can see if the White House is still standing, I hear that there's a revolt. The right wing, the moralists, the Christians, those that have some degree of morality, they're planning a revolt. Why do you think they got all the barbed wire around the White House? Who's that for? They have the National Guard protecting the White House while Portland and Seattle burn themselves. I hope that I know this is a little bit political, but it's not. 
It's spiritual because it's a direct reflection of something that happened before. And God wants me tonight to tell you this is something that's not new. You need to be aware of the tactics of the enemy. You also need to know that the Lord knows there's going to be an attack on the church. They've sent it the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. Now the fifth time, this is the last time, they've sent it with threats. Christians are not good citizens. They're revoltist. Why are you building a wall? Why don't you tear down the wall and let everything in? Why don't you just become like everyone else? Sideline, I refuse to watch football. I did not even watch a Super Bowl. And now I'm glad I know I didn't because someone told me about halftime. And it sounded from what they told me that it was Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if it was true, but I heard there were some things that people were wearing that were just obnoxious. We're living in a very depraved time. We are living at the very end. And the devil's tried One time, two times, three times, four times, five times. Remember the accusation time. Now he's using the tactic that you're you're against the goodwill of this country. Now I go back to what I said before. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. According to these reports, you are, be, are to become their king, and you have even appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf there is a king in Judah. Soon these rumors will reach the ears of the king, so let us confer together. Then I sent him this reply. There is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to frighten us, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will never be finished. And then I close tonight with this verse. He says this, but now God, now my God, strengthen my hands. It's amazing. It's amazing that in this time of history, we're at the final, we're at the very epic of the time when the God is going to call the warriors from earth. He's going to bring them up to heaven. He's going to give them white horses and authority, and He is going to let them ride with Him from heaven to earth at the great and final battle. And I don't take that lightly. Um, we're, we're not being taken out of the world to escape what's going on. We're being taken out so that we can come back and fight with him at the end. All right, that's all I have to say. I don't know if Paul saw that in 1 Thessalonians 4, if he really had that that whole image. But he did say, encourage one another with these words. That's what he did say. Encourage one another with these words. All you need to know is, in the end, we win. And nothing, what does it say, Brother Russ? Made against you shall prosper. I'm No weapon formed against you shall prosper. They're building all types of weapons against the church, but it isn't going to work because the church is part of the body which is attached to the head. You can't destroy the body without destroying the head, and guess what? The head is going to live forever, and so is the body. Let's stand together.
as I was driving here tonight, I realized, I thought about, uh, I thought about you, Brother John Matson. And you know what I thought about? I thought, I know this topic, I only got this a few days ago, where the Lord started to speak to me. And I said, Lord, there is so much more to this. There's so much more to what I said than what I said. And I said, there are great people in our church that I'm looking at them right now. But I'm looking at you, Brother John, because you like you liked to cut, a, cut the meat. And I think that God's going to speak to you and to us and show us things that I haven't said tonight to reinforce our purpose here on earth. So, Lord, I pray... I'm just a, a simple mouthpiece tonight, Lord. <clears throat> I pray that the words I've spoken and the direction you've given to me, that you would speak to the hearts of your people and that the faith, faith would rise in our hearts and fear would be driven to the shadows from whence it came. Cause the work to prosper, Lord. Help us to work together in one mind and one accord for one purpose until you come and blow that final trumpet for the final battle. I ask these things. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.